0: Well, in our series on the book of Acts, we are coming today to Acts 15, the end of the chapter. We dealt with the rest of it last week, but today is such an interesting uh, topic because when we come to the chapter, um, chapter 15, we have solved the world's, you know, biggest dispute in Christianity. And then when we come to the end of the chapter, this is a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. And it's so interesting. How will they handle it? And it's important that you see how they handle it, because now we have to handle disputes amongst ourselves, just like Paul and Barnabas did. Um, not like this. Uh, we don't say, you know, good morning, time to rise and grind. Uh, we want people not to scheme and scream, like manipulate, control, uh, yell to get your own way. Not like that. And it's so easy for Christians to kind of fall into this. I'm going to scheme. I'm, I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to play chess. Uh, because of the podcast doing the book of Genesis, uh, I was reminded again how scheming is such a part of uh, the book of Genesis and, and, you know, the patriarchal family. We have uh, Isaac being deceived by Jacob, you know, with the animal skins on his arms. And you have Abraham lying about uh, his wife, uh, Saying it's my sister, not my wife, and then Isaac does the same thing, and then you have the deception of uh, Laban with Jacob, and you have the wives Rachel and Leah fighting and deceiving and conniving, and then you have all of this deception with uh, Joseph, you know, bringing the the coat of many colors soaked in blood to to dad and saying it looks like Joseph is dead, and just just deceive, deceive, deceive. It's like can we just not? Manipulate everything. Quit playing chess. Just be honest. Can we just be honest? No scheming and no screaming. There's a better way to do life. And so today, this is the better way. Acts 15:36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go again and visit our brothers in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, who is called Mark. But Paul did not think it good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and did not go with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they separated from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. All right. So up until now, it's always been Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And they are a wonderful team. But now they're not going to be a team anymore. Basically, the book of Acts is going to start following Paul only. And we're not going to talk about Barnabas anymore, really, not significantly. So here we are with uh, Paul and Barnabas having a disagreement. And, you know, as a Christian, you're going to have disagreements sometimes with really good people because both Paul and Barnabas are really good people. So you're going to have disagreements sometimes. Now, how will you handle those disagreements? And my uh, exhortation to you is that you will handle it just like Paul and Barnabas handles it in this text. So how do they handle it? All right. Well, first of all, just start with this. Sometimes disagreements are actually God's preference. You realize that because of Paul and Barnabas splitting up, we now have two missionary teams instead of one. That is a good thing. All right. So now the question is, how shall we split up? And you might find this interesting, curious, that God actually prefers some disagreements amongst his people. think, really, why would God ever do that? An example of that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about how he wants to take care of the church at Corinth and he wants Apollos to come. And um, the church at Corinth loves Apollos. As a matter of fact, they have divided into these factions. And some say, I am of Paul. I really like Paul and I'm loyal to him. And some say, I am of Apollos. And they say, I really like Apollos. I'm loyal to Apollos over Paul. And some like Peter. They say, I really like Peter. And I'm loyal to Peter over Paul and Apollos. And some were the super spiritual. They said, well, we're only on the side of Christ. And so but it was still a faction and they were ugly about it. So anyway, uh, in Corinth, they really love Apollos. So Paul closing this letter to his friends at Corinth, he says, uh, as concerning our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come to you. I said to Apollos, please go check on your people. I greatly desired him to come to you. But his will was not at all to come at this time. No, I'm not going to go. I want you to go, please. No, I'm not going to go. But please, no, I'm not going to go. His will was not at all to come at this time. They disagree. And then Paul says, so he will come when he has a convenient time. Now, what's so great about that is they were probably both right. Paul said, please visit these people. They love you. They'll listen to you. You'll make such an impact. So Paul was right to think that, right? He is right. If Apollos goes, he'll make a big impact. The problem is, that Apollos is also one of the individuals that they have rallied around with these divisions in the church. And so he says, I don't want to go right now. It's just going to cause a problem. And the people who are for me are going to uh, be all happy. And the people who are against me are not going to be happy that I'm there. And it's just going to cause a problem. So I'm not going to go. And we presume that Apollos was probably more right than Paul in this. Because the Lord gives individuals leading, you know, for example, it'd be very hard for me to tell you what God's will is for your life specifically, because you talk to the Lord about guidance for your life. So I'm not in a position to say what God should do for your life. And and every Christian stands alone, you might say, with the Lord in such things. So we think Apollos was more right, but Paul was right. And it was probably good for Paul to think, Apollos, you're wonderful and everybody's just going to be so moved if you'll go there. So he's right. And Apollos is right. Saying, I, I know what you're saying, Paul, but I don't think this is a good idea. And so Apollos was more right. But this was a good Christian disagreement. It's a little bit like Romans fourteen five. Here the Apostle Paul says, One man regards one day above another. The other man regards every day alike. Let him, every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So here we're talking about Jewish holidays and most importantly, the Sabbath days. So there are Christians in the New Testament church who say, we have to worship on Saturday because that's the Sabbath day. And from time immemorial, the Sabbath day has been special. Since God created the world and rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath day is special. And if we really love God, we have to worship on the Sabbath day. And Paul says, you know, that's a really good idea. You know, one man regards the Sabbath day as a special day to God. Isn't that swell? But on the other hand, there's another guy who says, listen, we, we can't do this. Because Sabbath is such an issue and we're going to lead people right back into mosaic legalism if we start doing this with the Sabbath. So, you know, it's really great. It's probably both are right. I'll bet the Lord thought that was pretty swell to have people say, let's make Saturday special to the Lord. And the Lord would think in his heart. I'm, I'm surmising, right? I don't know what God thinks, but the Lord might think in his heart. Isn't it nice that these people want to have a special day for me? I think that's That's very sweet. And then these other people dig in and say, yeah, but that's going to take us right back to Sabbatarianism. You know, you have to obey the Sabbath or you're a bad guy. I think the Lord would think, isn't that swell? That these people dig in and they understand grace and say, we can't just let the whole world drift back into Sabbatarianism, into Mosaic legalism. So they, they dig in. Wasn't it great that these people wanted to have a day? Just for me, that was so sweet. And wasn't it great that these people said, hey, we have to be all about grace. We we can't let this happen and the whole world goes back into Sabbatarianism. So different things for different people. The Lord, through Paul, says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. You know, just make sure if you're saying, I want to have a special sweet day on Saturday for the Lord. Just make sure you're not talking about legalism like you must or you're a second rate Christian. And for those who dig in and say, well, we can't let this drift back into Sabbatarianism. We have to, we have to stop it and make sure everybody is not legalistic, make sure everybody is, is uh, uh, full of this concept of grace. The Lord might say, yeah, but don't hate the poor people, right, who want to have a special day for me. Like, yeah, well, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. You see, some of these disagreements probably suit God just fine. Like, good ideas on both sides carry on. Maybe God prefers to offer his people a number of choices. I've shown you this slide on a few occasions, but there's not just one way to do the Christian life. And you could look at those Amish fellows and say, you know, I'll bet the Lord thinks that that's very sweet, that they just want to be back to nature and simple and, and a, a community life and they love each other. That's, that's very sweet. And then maybe we'd say, but just don't become legalistic about it, right? Like you're not second rate if you drive a Harley motorcycle, right so just don 't get legalistic, and then, like those people in the duck dynasty picture like you know that's that's a really good way, uh and the lord probably just isn't that great there's like they're like nature and uh, you know kind of a simple life, and they 're not caught up in showing off their education and all those things that that's really nice, so maybe the word to them would be well you know just you have to have discipline in your life, right? You're not just drifters, right? You're not sitting around watching TV all the time, right? And, uh, so, but it's great. You know, it's just simple the way they live. Isn't that nice? And, um, the, uh, the, uh, one o'clock position, I guess we'll call that. Here's the middle class family. They're living in like a half a million dollar house, six hundred thousand dollar house, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of money and, and maybe into nice stuff. And I think they Lord would say, that's nice you know they they've worked hard they they like to to curate their furnishings their belongings it's really quite pretty i, I imagine they have a, a a sense of of beauty when they look at their house and their yard and everything squared away i I like that, but let's just tell them you know not to get caught up in materialism right but sure that that's that's very they, they're very um they're good workers they work hard and just have a a beautiful family that's so nice and you can imagine the lord at the bottom uh, or the three o'clock position, and the, the family is a little bit frumpy and uh, probably in the homeschool movement and all of that. And I said, well, that's great. Isn't it great that they're not beautiful people? I mean, they just you know don't put all their emphasis on outward appearance. And, um, you know, they're, they're investing themselves in, in the homeschooling of their children. Isn't that nice? You know, they don't, they don't have a lot of money, but isn't that great? So, you know, our, our word of caution to them might be once again. Well, don't think that if somebody is beautiful, like the people above you in the one o'clock position, don't think badly of them. Right? Those are beautiful people, and they're doing a good job too. So, so, so carry on, everybody. And a different look uh, at the bottom. We have the the young, up to date Christians, and I think the you know isn't that isn't that great? See, see they they, uh, they they are not at the stage where they have families, but, but they love each other and uh, they're up to date. They, they represent me well when they're walking around the university campus and everything. We say, here's some really nice young people. I, I wonder what they're all about. You know, what's their journey? And then those young people are going to talk about me. I just think that's great. So you could dress frumpy if you want to, or you could be up to date, you know, something good in each one. And then the tiny house people, well, you know, they're out. Far away from everybody. They probably can't have a lot of kids in a house that size. uh And they probably aren't going to have a lot of company over. But, you know, it's great. You know, they don't have a lot of money. They're, they're doing what they can to put together a nice little life. And, and you know, that that's just great. And then at the uh, 9 o'clock position, the Amish people we've already talked about. So maybe the Lord is glad. You know, we have these disagreements. Well, I don't want to do it like that. I don't want to ride a horse and buggy. Well, all right, well you don't have to. But that's one way. And maybe the Lord is glad that there are some people on earth who really just want to do the horse and buggy commune thing. Maybe the Lord likes that. Maybe he just wants to offer people options. And so we disagree. Say, well, I don't want to have a $600,000 house and mortgage. I want to have a tiny house. Fine, fine, fine. The Lord's offering options, right? Maybe it's good that we disagree so that people can see there's more than one way. Um. In yellow font there, you see the critical part of this text and the contention between Paul and Barnabas. The contention was so sharp between them that they separated from one another. When I was younger, I thought that that idea of the contention being so sharp had to do with them being maybe a little ugly about it. But I don't think that anymore. And I'm sorry I ever did think that. Um, I don't think we should assume that their disagreement ever became ugly. I don't think that's a safe assumption. We just get so used to thinking, well, when I disagree with somebody, it gets ugly. But that's not what's happening here, I think. Um, By ugly, we mean sinful. And by sinful, we mean, as you see in the yellow bullet point there, saying or even thinking either untrue or unkind thoughts about the other. So um, you get upset. You're having a disagreement. And you say, well, I'll tell you what's wrong with those people. Those people uh, just bug me with their holier-than-thou attitude or whatever. Y- you are not allowed to say out of your mouth anything that doesn't pass two tests, right? So before you say it, it has to pass two tests. The first test is, is that loving? And the second test is, is it true? And it has to be both. If it's loving but not true, um, that's dishonest. Like, well, you could go ahead and commit sexual immorality and it's going to be okay. See, that's very loving in a way. You're, you're trying to be gentle, but it's not true. They won't be okay. There's going to be a problem. Uh, on the other hand, it could be true but not loving, and that's bad. So again, in my case, you could say, uh, well, you know, Dave has a disfigured right hand and crooked teeth. Well, that's true. But I kind of hope you don't tell everybody that all the time. It's not exactly uplifting, but it's totally true. So everything that you ever say has to pass two tests. Is it true? And is it also loving? And if it doesn't pass either one of those, you can't say it. Now, here's the real trick. Not only are you not allowed to say it, you're not even allowed to think it. And if you have habituated a critical way of thinking, now you have trouble. Because you're going to say, whoa, 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 she's really packing on the pounds, isn't she? And then you have to say, oh, that is not a loving thing to say. Never mind. Think, I shouldn't even be thinking that. What I should be thinking is, well, she's probably doing the very best she, she can and life is pretty hard and uh, she's a dear person. That's what you should think. You have to correct those thoughts as soon as they come. So not only are you not allowed to say it if it's not both loving and true, you're not even allowed to think it and you have to correct yourself in the moment quickly so that it doesn't become your habituated way of seeing the world. That's a real challenge. Now, the good news in this case is Barnabas and Saul have already habituated the new way of thinking. Not only do they not say things about people that are not true and kind, they don't even think things about people that are not true and kind. And so we'll talk about more of that in just a minute. But here's how we know. You're not even allowed to think things that are not true and kind. So in Philippians 4-7, which is such a key verse for everything in the Christian life. Philippians 4.7 says, Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, and there are more things there with the ellipses, true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good, report." But we're skipping all that with the ellipses right now because I want to show you true and kind. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are lovely, think on these things. That's a command. You have to think on these things. Well, you could think about a thousand things that aren't true or that aren't lovely, but you're commanded to think on these things. So when Paul and Barnabas had their disagreement, they were obeying that command. They were thinking still about the things that are true and lovely. And that's what you have to do when you disagree with somebody. In Ephesians 4.29, we're we're going to talk now not just about what you think, but now what actually comes out of your mouth, what you say. So Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to use of edifying. See, it's uplifting. When I do say something, it will be uplifting. Now, bear in mind that sometimes you do indeed have to say things about God's judgment. You have, as the scripture says, the the obligation to be admonishing one another and admonishing, um, admonishing means that you're going to have a teaching with a bit of a barb, a teaching with a warning attached to it. Like I'm teaching you this and also you better do it or there's going to be a problem. Uh, And we would only do that when we're representing the Lord um, on a difficult matter. But for the most part, and even that, of course, is uplifting, right? Um, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, I hate that you had to tell me that, but you needed to tell me that. You know, thanks, I needed that. So that's what's happening. And, and so, but no matter what, it's edifying. It was uplifting, so no com- uh, communication coming out of your mouth is corrupt. It's all going to be edifying, and then it will minister grace. So there it is. It's it's kind. It it helps, it helps people because it ministers kindness. The same thing really in Colossians chapter four verse six. Let your speech be always with grace, always kindness. So you see, when Paul and Barnabas had their disagreement, they were not saying untrue or unkind things about each other. In fact. They weren't even thinking them. Additionally, they weren't questioning the other individual's devotion to God or sincere pursuit of God's wisdom in the situation. So at no time would Paul look at Barnabas and say, are you even like a sincere Christian? Or in this matter, in this matter, are you even willing to obey God? Like, it seems to me you're not even willing. He would never say that. He's not questioning Barnabas's. Devotion to God or Barnabas's um, desire for the Lord's guidance in this disagreement. And, and Paul and Barnabas are the same this way. Neither one is expecting uh, that this has arisen because one or the other is failing spiritually. They're, they're just not there. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, that very important text, Do not judge, judge not, so that you will not be judged. And why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not consider the beam that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first cast out the beam from your own eye. So it's not like Paul was looking at Barnabas or vice versa and saying, You know, you, you, you are just you're just so disobedient to God in this. You know, why are you like this? They're not doing that. Uh, they are keenly aware of their own faults and they're not finding fault with the other. In first Corinthians thirteen five, again, you know, earth shaking text of scripture just changes everything right love thinks no evil i will not think evil of you i don't think we're having this disagreement because you don't love the lord you're not seeking the lord's guidance i'm not going to think that i don't know what you think i just don't know it's invisible to me i have no idea how much you love the lord how would i know so i don't imagine that you don't love the lord i take for granted that you do love the Lord. That's what Paul and Barnabas thought of each other during this disagreement. Love thinks no evil, and love believes all things. Well, look, you're looking at me and saying that you do love the Lord. Well, because I love you, I want to believe you. So, okay, you love the Lord. You're looking at me and saying that you have asked the Lord for guidance. All right, well, I believe you. I love you. If that's what you're saying, then I take it that way. I want to believe you because love always wants to believe. So Paul and Barnabas feel this way about each other, and they're not... They're not questioning the other one's motives. Motives are invisible. We don't know. We're not questioning devotion and desire for guidance. And we're not downgrading the other person's intelligence or integrity. Like, why can't you see it my way? Are you just like a lower life form or something? What's wrong with you? And they would never. Paul would never think that about Barnabas. Barnabas would never think that about Paul. We're not going to downgrade the other's intelligence or the other's integrity. Okay, well, here's the problem. Either you're just dumb like a box of rocks or you're being dishonest. That's the only way I can figure this. No, you, you can't do that when you're disagreeing with fellow Christians. They're not dumb like a box of rocks and they're not dishonest. Now, of course, it is possible for a person to be dishonest, but you don't know the situation. You don't know what's in there. You don't know if they're trying to deceive you. It's invisible. You just don't know. So, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, edifies. Knowledge makes you weird. Love builds up. It's uplifting. And if any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. It's like, Listen, Barnabas, either you're dumb like a box of rocks or you're just dishonest. Well, Paul instead should say, "Um, I know that I don't know anything yet as I ought to know. So we are both, unfortunately, dumb about many things in life. So I do not think that you are a lower life form. The problem is with all of us. We just don't know. In Philippians 2, 3, in loneliness of mind, let each estimate the other better than themselves. Say, well, you must just be either dumb or dishonest. I don't know which. You can't do that. You have to say, I'm assuming in this disagreement that you are more honest than I am. I can't see your heart, but I am going to estimate, esteem, regard, that you are more honest than I am, and your ideas may very well be better than mine. See, that's how you disagree. In Romans 12:16, do not be wise in your own conceits. Don't say, "Well, you're dumb like a box of rocks, but I'm not." like, whoops, that's a problem, because at the moment you think that, then you are the one who's failing. And First Corinthians 13:5 once again, "Love thinks no evil, love believes all things. Listen you say. That you're being honest and you honestly think that you're right. You honestly think that this is the right thing for you to do. I love you, so I want to believe you. And I don't know why we're having this disagreement. By the way, you know that the disagreements we're talking about today and last week, um, these are disagreements where the Bible has not spoken definitively, right? Right? Like, should you join the Amish community or should you have a tiny house or should you have a $600,000 house? I mean, the Bible doesn't say. So the kinds of disputes we're talking about are things that are not directly regulated by the New Testament. If we're talking about whether it's okay to go worship idols, well, now we're going to dig in on that one and say, you must not do that, right? That is regulated by chapter and verse uh, scripture. So there's no doubt about this. We're talking about things that are not regulated by the New Testament. Love thinks no evil. Love believes all things. You say you honestly think this is what the Lord wants you to do, and I, I think differently. But you, you say that you, you're being honest, and so I, I believe you. You see, and we're not going to downgrade the other's intelligence, Were are you just dumb, or the other's integrity, Were are you just dishonest? We don't know what degree of honesty is in their hearts, so we don't go there. We're also not going to be stating the same points repeatedly, because that's a sin. You can't just keep harping away on the same thing. So in Philippians 2.14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Murmurings, uh, that's one of those onomatopoeia uh, words, you know, it sounds like what it is, murmur, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. And disputings, you know that that's quarreling. You, you can't quarrel with people. And quarreling always talks in repetition. Cycle around. Same thing, same thing, same thing. We already said that. Stop. <laughs> we can't quarrel. Same thing in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Again, life-changing, life-changing verse. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. I mean, if you just had those words in the Bible and everybody would obey them, Like, whoo, that really changes life. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't dispute. You can't quarrel. You can't repeat the same things to the same people over and over again. That's quarreling. Don't do that. You can't just keep repeating the same points you always make. Proverbs 27, verse 15 You know, we're sorry that the women are singled out on this. It's equally true of the men. But a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. And a contentious man is the same way. You just keep drip, drip, drip. The same thing would just stop. All right. Well, the scripture is telling you that you can't state the same thing over and over again when there's a disagreement. Titus 3.10. This is so helpful again. (laughs) life-changing statements of scripture, right? Titus 3.10. A man who is a divisive person after the first and second admonition reject. This is so important because it's telling us what to do on our side. Like we can't make somebody stop dripping at us, right? That's between them and the Lord. Uh, So we have to make sure that we are not the one dripping on somebody else. And how shall we know if we have repeated our point well enough? And this is the verse that tells you. Here, uh, Young Titus, a pastor uh, or apostle, small letter A, he's told, have you talked to somebody? And and the person is wrong in this case. He's a divisive person. He's wrong. Uh, Have you talked about it once? That's the first admonition. And have you talked about it twice? That's the second admonition. Well, then we're done. We said it once. We've clarified it and we'll never bring it up again. Two times. You get two times. And that's for a pastor talking to a person who's clearly wrong. So we can't just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. That's quarreling. And if you want to serve Jesus, you cannot quarrel. So you have two times. And once you have given the first and second admonition, you never bring it up again unless the person wonders if you've changed your mind. And then you just, uh, you know, refer to last month's conversation or whatever. And sometimes people do change their minds, so you might have to clarify. But except for that, you stop dripping. Don't drip. Don't, don't keep harping on the same thing. Paul and Barnabas did not keep repeating their points over and over and over again. They stated their points, and they listened to the other's point. They were not ugly in the sense of being insulting in either tone or terms, because tone does matter. Body language. You can say a certain thing with the roll of the eyes. That means something totally different if you said it without the rolling of the eyes. It's the tone, the body language, as well as the actual verbiage. In 2 Timothy 2.24, again, the Sermon of the Lord can't quarrel, can't keep repeating the same things over and over again, but he has to be gentle. So the tone has to be gentle, a gentle tone. In Galatians 5.15, if you do decide to bite and devour one another, take heed lest you be devoured. Be careful because you might cease to exist. Uh, there, There was a friendship there before, but now the friendship's gone. There was a church there before, but now the church is gone. There was a family there before, but now the family's gone. You kept biting and devouring, and then it all went away you can 't be insulting in tone or in terms ephesians five twenty one submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God, so I acquiesce to you you know submitting yourself to the other I, I acquiesce to your preference. What is your preference I, I acquiesce to that, and I am not your mother scolding a little child here i 'm not standing over you, wagging my finger at you i 'm not going to be insulting in the words I use or in my body language i I am I'm not treating you like my child that needs to be reprimanded. In 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you, same idea, all of you be subject to one another and be clothed with humility. You're not standing over somebody and wagging your finger. You are submitting to them. And they were not threatening to terminate their warmth for one another. And that is, you know, sort of like burning the bridges. Well, you know, an ultimatum. Well, if you're going to do that, then, you know, you shouldn't expect me to hang around. They didn't do that. That's sinful. You say, why is that sinful? Oh, well, for example, 1 Corinthians 13 7 says, love endures all things. Well, if you do that, I'm not going to love you anymore. Whoops, that would be a sin. That's not loving. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less you love me. Uh, but that's okay. You don't have to return my love. And I am very glad to keep spending for you and even more abundantly. And if you treat, treat me badly, I'm still going to love you. And I'm glad to do it. See, that's how Paul and Barnabas disagree. Romans 15:7. Therefore, accept one another, even as Christ also accepted us. So it's like, well, if you do this, you know, we can't really be friends anymore. If you do this... You know, just consider this the end. You know, the bridge is burnt. Oh, really? How is that accepting this person that you disagree with in the same way that Christ accepts this person? Christ is not burning the bridges over this. And you cannot either. In First Thessalonians 3.12, this is life changing. But it is. This is the most important verse in the New Testament on love. Everybody, you know, will think of other verses, I'm sure. But this is the one. This is the most important verse in the New Testament on love. May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another and towards all men. You know what's so great about that? It says who you're supposed to love. Everybody. And also that you're supposed to love everybody more tomorrow than today. You're going to increase and abound. Abound is abundant. You're going to increase in love to one another and to everybody. So that person could be in your face, saying all kinds of mean things about you. And you, in your heart, will be saying, well, tomorrow I'm going to love you more than I do today. And five years from now, you should see how much I'm going to love you. It's never an ultimatum. It's never a burned bridge. I will always love you because that's what Christians do. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did when they disagreed. So this is the list we just went through. We should not assume that the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas became ugly, saying or even thinking untrue or unkind things about each other, questioning each other's invisible devotion to God and sincere pursuit of God's wisdom, downgrading the other's intelligence or integrity, stating the same points repeatedly, being insulting either in tone or in terms, or threatening to terminate the relationship. That's not what they did because they are both spirit-filled individuals And they wouldn't do that. And yet, their disagreement was probably still very, very painful. You know, the reason people disagree is because they both think that they're right. And so Paul says, I want to go with you, Barnabas. And Barnabas says, "Oh, great, well, we'll bring John Mark. And Paul says, well, we can't bring John Mark because the last time we tried that, he left us after the very first city stop. So I don't want to bring him. And Barnabas says, but I do want to bring him. He said, I don't want to. What I do. And so they eventually gave up and created two mission teams. And that must have hurt. When we say, I have this great idea and and I want you to do it with me. And the other, I, I want us all to make our own. We're going to put all of our money together and we're going to have an Amish commune. Okay. And it'll be great. And we'll all. Uh, love each other and our children can play together and we can do um cooperative education and cooperative farming we're all just going to do this okay and somebody says no i don't want to do that no but, but you'll love it it'll be great and we don't understand why aren't you as excited about it as i am i mean isn't it a great idea won't won't it be fun i mean we'll have horses that horses are fun right it'll be great and we just step out of the grind you know, no more, rise and grind. It's morning, rise and grind. We'll step out of the garden. Won't it be great? And the person says, no, I don't want to do that. You think, well, I don't know why he's not as excited about it as I am. And each person, Paul and Barnabas, was excited about his idea. We're going we're gonna to reclaim John Mark. It'll be so great. Everybody will say, wow, now he's so much better. The last time he kind of sat around in the back of the room looking all pouty, and now he's into this. Well, you know, what a great thing. And and that's Barnabas' idea. And Saul says, no, he's going to bail on us again. And it looks terrible that this guy runs off thinking bad things about us. And and it's just heartbreaking to all the Christians to see somebody bail out on the Christian faith. I'm I'm not going to bring him again. And so each idea is good. In the middle of all of this, even the best of Christians, and Paul and Barnabas are the best of Christians, But even the best of Christians, during disagreement, will have flashes of exasperation. But for most people, they wouldn't even notice it. And they repented of it very quickly. So sometimes when I get flashes of exasperation with Teresa, which is very brief and (laughs) few and far between, right? Then she says, oh, I can tell you're mad at me. And I didn't raise my voice. She said, I could just tell. Well, she knows me really well, so she can read, you know, the, the signs that most people might not be able to pick up on. And it is possible that Paul and Barnabas, even probable, would have had flashes of exasperation. Like, why is this happening? And, but for most of us, we wouldn't even observe that while they were talking. And they repented of it very, very quickly. Because that's what spirit-filled people do. They get back to where they belong. Go back home. you know, Get back to your set point. And your set point is obeying the leading of the Holy Spirit. Get back to your set point quickly. They probably had flashes of hurt ego. Flashes. I mean, these are wonderful men. But they would have flashes of hurt ego. Like, you just don't trust me, do you? But it'd be just brief. And you wouldn't even notice it probably if you were watching them talk. But... It probably happened. And they would have to immediately go back to their set point. We've got to get up on track with, with the Holy Spirit's leading in this thing. And if I have ego, the problem is mine, not Barnabas's, Or vice versa. There may have been flashes of thinking badly of the other's motives. Um, flashes. But you probably never notice it if you're watching them talk and they get back to their set point very quickly. It might sound like Barnabas is just doing this because John Mark is his relative. Like, pff, that's a terrible thought. Uh, I'm sorry for that. And, and I, I'm not thinking bad. I, I, I do not think that Barnabas is doing this just for a family motive. You have to fix it fast, flashes, but you don't linger there. And that's how they disagreed. So, why do so many of our Christian disagreements devolve into thinking untrue, unkind thoughts, questioning the other's invisible motives that we're not even allowed to judge, imagining that the other person is either dishonest or dumb. I mean, why is it that we do that? And the answer is, either we are competitive, pridefully competitive, or we're yearning for control. Prideful competitiveness leads to all of those bad things, and that has to be replaced by a humility and a compassion that the Lord puts in our hearts. So in Mark 10:42, it shall not be so among you. You want to have your own way. Like, no, Barnabas, I said we're not bringing him, and we're not bringing him. Case closed. You want to have it your way. Except Jesus said you can't do that. It will not be so among you. Instead, you are going to serve and you're going to give your life for the other. I'll do it your way. Or if I cannot in good conscience, do it your way. Then we are going to divide here. But that doesn't mean we're terminating the warmth and the relationship. In Mark nine thirty-five, notice at the top of this slide, the word competitiveness, right? So um, prideful competitiveness. And at the bottom, look at the last line. Jesus talks about being last of all. If a man desires to be first, if you like to be first in the Lord's administration, then here's how you have to do it. The same shall be last of all. That sort of torpedoes all competitiveness, doesn't it? If I want to be great in the Lord's eyes, then I have to be the last of all. I put myself last. And there goes competitiveness, right? This has to be replaced with the humble hope of the other person's happiness. I I really want you to be happy. And once again, Matthew 25, 40, in as much as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. You wanted them to be happy. You wanted to bring them relief in a hard, scary world. Well, it's just like doing something nice for me. And we yearn to control other people. That's, that's why we are having disagreements that get ugly because we want to control others. That has to be complaced again, by... Humility, compassion, a wish for the other person's happiness. And it also has to be replaced by a persuasion in the core of your heart that you don't have to manipulate and scheme and connive. You don't have to scheme and scream to get your way because your life has a happy ending without all of the nonsense of scheming and screaming. When you believe that in the core of your being, then you quit playing chess all the time. You quit manipulating. You quit trying to control. And that's what we all need. So that compassion and humble hope, that's the same as what we talked about a minute ago. The, the last person, you put yourself last and put away all of the competitiveness. And you're just hoping for the happiness of the others. And this deep persuasion that your story is going to have a happy ending without the screaming and scheming. You don't have to scream and scheme anymore. The Lord's got you. So in Matthew 25:34, Then the king shall say to them on, my right hand, on his right hand, Come, blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the end of this. You have a happy ending. In James 2, 5, Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So if you're poor in this world, that doesn't mean you have to scream and scheme so you're not poor anymore you might just be stuck, poor. But aren't these the ones who are heirs of the kingdom which God has promised to those who love him? You could be poor, but you're still going to be heir of the kingdom of love. Isn't that great? This is a montage of scripture. I know you can't see that very well, but let me do it fast and just notice that Where the references are, it's saying that this was a different time when Jesus taught the same principle. So it's not like um, Matthew relayed this story, and I'm quoting it, and then Mark relayed it, and I'm quoting the same story. These are all different stories. So here's what it sounds like in the New Testament. If any man desires to be the first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. But many that are first shall be last And the last shall be first. So the last shall be first and the first last. There are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. exalted. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So in other words, there's this humility uh, I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm not saying that my way is better than your way. I just want you to be happy. Humility and security because I know my life is going to have a happy ending and so I don't need to control you. Whatever you do, you do. And here again, a montage. Will, if you follow Jesus, will your life have a happy ending without screaming and scheming? Yes. Paul talks about the prize of the high calling. It's far better, the future that we look forward to in heaven. It's far better. No more sorrow or crying. Paradise. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. The kingdom which God has promised to those who love him. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. That's a happy ending. You do not need to scheme and scream for that happy ending. That happy ending is yours. As a matter of fact, if you do scheme and scream, you're going to kind of ruin it. It's it's locked in for you. You don't have to scheme. No playing chess. No controlling. No manipulation. Relax. Just be honest. So their disagreement was not ugly, but it was surely still painful. It felt like grief over loss. And you'll have this. In the best of disagreements with good people, you'll have this. It's like, hey, I love being on your team, and now we're not going to be a team anymore. They're going to be two mission teams. Wasn't it grand when we worked together? And now that's gone. You grieve that. There would be disappointment if you disagree with a fine person. There will still be disappointment. It will be like, well, it's the death of a dream. I, I wanted us all to live in an Amish farm. And now we can't. And I'm, I'm disappointed. And it's like confusion. What, am I thinking wrongly about this? Like, what's wrong with me? Why, why do they disagree with me? That's just part of being a Christian and having disagreements. But... And here's how we close. If God wanted there to be two mission teams and these two former partners loved each other dearly, but God said, I don't want there to be one mission team. I want there to be two mission teams now. Then how would God have wanted Barnabas and Paul to work it out? Oh, well, they would listen to each other and they would admire each other and they would assure each other of their love ongoing. For matter of fact, I'll love you more tomorrow than yesterday. And then they would hug each other and with misty eyes say, see you on the flip-flop, whatever. I got to go to my mission. You go to yours. And that's exactly what they did. That's how it should be done. And that's exactly what they did. So not this. This is not your life, right? No screaming and scheming. We're not going to do that. We're going to do this. And you can by God's grace.